When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you're joining us for the very first time, be sure to like and subscribe if you like what you hear. Leave us a rating, leave us a comment, leave us a review that will help the algorithms to get us to spread around the world to bring more people to listening to good music. Um, If you like what you hear, check out our Instagram and Facebook page, uh, both pages. Get in on the conversation and suggest to us what artists you want to hear, and we just might get around to doing them. And we really want to tailor this show to you guys because, obviously, you're the listeners, so we want to you know, kind of give you what you want. Um, if you really, really are a connoisseur of good music and you really love the podcast and you really want to support us, down into the free episode link to our patreon page where you can support us and you can also in exchange get early access to every episode and you can get access to our exclusive after hours segment where we talk about the worst music of every artist every week that we record right after every episode and that is some of the most fun that we have because we're completely unfiltered and we just really lay into some of this bad music so that's a very fun segment you definitely want to check it out if you love bad music as well but without any further ado i don't think i'm missing anything i think i hit all the big ticket items like and subscribe all that stuff right we are continuing our special month this month so lucas what do i mean by that and what is the installment for this week so I'm going to go see Genesis in November, God willing, if uh, the tour doesn't get canceled, because that's been happening a lot lately. Yeah. Um, but until it happens, I'm going to assume that I'm still going. I'm going to go see Genesis. And so this is Genesis Appreciation Month. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to just talk about Genesis all month. That'd be pretty boring after a while. But what we're going to do is we're going to kind of we did Genesis last week and we're going to do related episodes for the rest of the month. And I mean, does it get more um, related to Genesis than Phil Collins? Uh, Peter Gabriel. Well, I would say <laughs> Phil Collins even more because he was the bigger artist. Oh, that's true. And he did stay with them for all but one album, right? The first one. Uh, no, he wasn't on the second no, one. He either. was on the third. Right, right. And he wasn't on the last one. <laughs> Oh, interesting. So, there's actually uh, three albums that he was not on. But still. But he was on more than Peter Gabriel. But Yes, by a long shot. He is definitely an important figure in their 
development. And he's, he's an a, important figure, period. He's a port important figure, period. I mean, the Tarzan soundtrack, right? Everybody knows that. Oh, yeah. That's everybody how knows. I first heard of Phil Collins. Yeah, me too. And everybody knows the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, you know? The, that, that drum break. That drum break in uh, the kind of little-known song, uh, In the Air Tonight. You might have heard of it. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So... Grant, we'll we'll use that as a way to get into first thoughts. So, what are your first thoughts about Phil Collins? So, obviously, we just came off of Genesis, and uh, like I heard all about his drumming, and that was really great. But I don't know a lot about his solo career other than the Disney soundtracks like Tarzan and In the Air Tonight, and one of the songs that we're going to talk about on this episode that I didn't even know it was his. So, I don't know if I should really count that one. Um, and when we talked about our Peter Gabriel episode, I couldn't even distinguish whether or not it was Phil Collins or Peter Gabriel. Like, I didn't even know, like, obviously they do sound similar, you know, because they were in the same band. I mean, Peter Gabriel probably trained Phil Collins. There's probably some, like, uh, cross-pollination there or whatever you would call it. And so that makes sense that they would sound alike, but I didn't know enough songs to be able to say this isn't, you know, Phil Collins, this is somebody else, right? Um, and that still holds true today. I don't know a lot of Phil Collins songs, but I do know to appreciate him. I mean, he's like a household name. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows to respect him. I'd have to say that even though I don't know a lot of his songs, I would still probably start at a six, right? Because of the familiarity factor and the fact that I just know that he's a front man who drums, which is kind of, you know, not really well heard of. Um, so I don't know. I'd probably start at six, not knowing a lot, but still knowing that he's very important, still knowing that he's an important figure in, in the whole tapestry of music and Genesis, of course, which is our focus of this month. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm starting. So I'm sure you're starting at something way higher. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I talked about in the last uh, episode how... Uh, one of the first artists that I had uh, kind of gravitated towards when I got that iPod from my dad in eighth grade was um, Genesis and Phil Collins. So uh, Phil has been a very important part of my life for as long as I've been listening to music, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that his greatest hits was on that iPod, and I listened the heck out of that thing and um i would still say now that he is my second favorite singer next to freddie mercury wow yeah like i have i have mad respect for phil not just in genesis but in his solo career as well Mm -hmm. so um i would say that just like i was with genesis i'm starting at a nine because of just how influential he's been on me as a vocalist um he's someone that i really look to for um how to how to build the emotion of a song vocally and so and i mean i knew i knew a pretty good amount of his songs there were still some albums of his that i'd never listened to and mm-hmm. gotten really into, but there had been some that I had listened to all the way through. I've got No Jacket Required on vinyl, which is really, really great album. 
solid from start to finish. And um, yeah, just Phil Phil's one of my boys, and I'll always stick up for him, even when it's kind of not cool sometimes. Too, although I would say that people have finally come around to Phil Collins. There was there was a period in like the the late 90s through the 2000s where it was very unpopular to like phil collins really because yeah. i've i've never known anyone to think like that i've well, known people to be confused as to who he was and not be very uninformed i mean that's probably because most of your opinions are by observing what's gone on in the 2010s because that's more of your growing up generation that's true. Probably the the decade that you would have been more in tune with what's going on in music probably would have been the 2010s. Where for me it was the 2000s. Hmm. And it was uh it, there there was a period where it was like everyone looked at Phil Collins as lame. And I think a big part of it was because of how huge he was. Um, uh, people don't really like to root for the winner. Yeah, and there was the and there were certain things about stuff that he did in his career, stuff that was in his personal life that some people were not happy about. But I'll kind of walk through that when we go through his solo career history. Yeah, I you did notice or did note, I should say, before, um, in in a previous episode, I can't remember which one it was. It was probably the Genesis episode that he wasn't necessarily the best looking guy, but I don't know. He kind of has that like Johnny Cash kind of. He's well. He looks. He looks like your everyman. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. He looks like a working class guy. He's not a model, but he doesn't look ugly. No, but he's also. I wouldn't say that he's like the one of the pinnacles of attractiveness either. No, that's, yeah, he's not he's not going to be a uh, Jim Morrison kind of No. Of guy. <laughs> yeah, he was never a sex symbol. No. And he never yeah. tried to be either. He knew that he wasn't. I mean, by the time his solo career started, he was already balding. So, you know, that was just that just wasn't going to work for him. But yeah, Phil Collins, he's just he's He's such a unique talent. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously to be so instrumentally talented, but then also to figure out that he was a great songwriter as well. And he always knew that he was a good vocalist. Um, it's actually not true that Peter Gabriel taught him how to sing. Oh, I would say probably when Phil joined the band, he was probably the better pure singer of the two. Because he had his whole childhood, he was on, he was in, um, in theater doing musicals. Oh, so did he, he Peter Gabriel or did they? Um, they no, because that wasn't that wasn't his personality to kind of like domineer over any bandmates and to kind of add his input in. He's a very shy guy. Mm-hmm. He he often referred to himself as being Mister Insecure. And it was the reason why he didn't write for such a long time. Because um, he, he was very scared to present Tony and Mike his compositions because they were very critical people. So, well, I guess that kind of ended up being good because then he would self-filter and he would produce only the best. Yes. So let's talk about kind of where the solo career started. Yes. So he did three 
albums with Genesis as their front man, starting with Trick of the Tail, then Wind and Wuthering, and then and then there were three, which is was their first one as a trio after Steve Hackett left. And um, it was during the tour of that record that he was going through a divorce with his first wife. Mm-hmm. Um, he would have three wives that he has and three divorces, unfortunately. Mm. So he's not had the best of luck in the marital department, but it's been fuel for the fire for a lot of his best songs. So he was he was going through a, a really nasty divorce because he, there was two kids involved in it, and she um, took both of the kids to Vancouver while he was in England. So not oh, well. only was she taking him to Canada, but she was taking him to – taking them to the Pacific side of Canada. Wow. So, you know, that's, that is, that's like a seven hour flight just in of itself, probably even more. Yeah. And so he was, he was pretty depressed at that time. He was very angry. He had um, been doing some side projects. Like he helped, um, Peter Gabriel a lot with his third record, which came out like around 1980-ish. And um, he was he was with a couple of other groups kind of just as a drummer and just really took a hiatus from Genesis to kind of figure out what his personal life was like. He tried to move to Canada to make things work, ended up not working out. He came back. And the reason they had gotten divorced was because he found out that while he was on tour that his wife had cheated on them with their house painter. Mm. But she still claims that it was his fault because of his incessant touring and not being there drove her away from him. Wow. And so there was, it was a very nasty and contentious situation. It was not an easy divorce. And so finally, when he failed to put the family back together in Canada, he moved back to England, uh, got his own flat, and that's when he kind of set up his own little home studio. And right at about that time, the first real drum machines were coming out. And so because he was in a a fairly high-profile band at this point, Genesis was really starting to get big. At this point, as far as like in the mainstream rock and pop markets mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not just the underground prog. So they had gotten uh, – he had gotten a drum machine. Originally, he didn't want it because he was just like, I'm a drummer. Why would I need a drum machine? These are the things that are going to put me out of business. <laughs> oh, man. But then he started to tinker with it. and He was just like, oh, wait, hold on. I can at least use this to demo stuff, and that way I can I can actually start to figure out how to write songs. And so he just played with it. And the first thing that he came up with with this new studio was In the Air Tonight. No flipping way. Yeah. His that first was, song? Uh-huh. That's amazing. And so eventually he just – he started to just come up with these songs. And his, his motivation was he – couldn't get through to his wife by conversation so he thought that he would communicate to her through song and so he wrote all these songs expressing how he felt about her but he never intended them to be an album 
in the same way that Dave Grohl didn't intend the first Foo Fighters to be an album. It was just for his personal well-being, catharsis, therapy, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was very personal. You know, he was. All the songs were directly about what he was feeling at that time, and so, um, so yeah, he he made all those songs and then Genesis gets together in 80 finally to work on a new record. The one that would end up becoming Duke. And he starts to present a couple of these songs and a couple of them make it onto the record. Um, notably one of their first big hits with misunderstanding and the, the other bandmates are starting to go, Oh, hold on. All of a sudden, Phil, you're starting to write songs. And mm-hmm. so he he eventually takes these demos with a little bit of added confidence over to uh, Atlantic Records, who, mm-hmm. which at the time was headed by the very famous Amat Erdogan. Uh, we talked about him a lot when we uh, did our Aretha Franklin episode because he was one of the guys that discovered her and gave her her big break. Mm-hmm. He discovered Ray Charles. He um, was a big part of Led Zeppelin's career. Like he's, he's probably the most important and famous, like industry guy of all time. Wow! It's the reason why, when at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that they call it the Ahmet Erdogan Award, is the 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 inductees of people that were not musicians people that were either producers or managers or A&R people because mm-hmm. Amit was the guy. And so he took those demos to him and Amit heard in the air tonight and said, we have to release this. This is a hit record. <laughs> and, and then just told him, just like, you got, you got more. And he showed the other stuff. He was just like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. You have to release this. This will be a smash record. Wow. And so when, when, when a guy like that tells you to, you can't say no. Right. But he still had no idea if it was going to be anything big. I mean, it, it could have been that he was just being nice to him or maybe he liked it. He didn't know how people were going to respond to it. So he releases the first record, Face Value, and it ends up becoming a huge hit. Well, yeah. And so that was that was kind of like an all of a sudden, oh my gosh, here it is. So he now has this juggling act of not only am I going to be doing records with Genesis, but now I've got a, a an unexpectedly successful solo career. I can't just make one of these. I got to do another one. And so he's, he's having to pull double duty being in Genesis and having a solo career. And really, when you think about it, I don't think any other artist has been able to do that, to have going on at the same time, a hugely successful band and a hugely successful solo career. That is kind of crazy. Usually people have the big solo career after their normal band either broke up or is past its prime would they um like would he bring songs to genesis still yes he became a lot more um confident but he usually would write with them he he 
decided that the songs that he was writing on his own, he wasn't going to share with them. That's a, that's a nice way to break it up. That's true. He was because the way Genesis wrote just in general was very collaborative. Mm-hmm. You know, usually someone would bring a a beginning idea or a song would develop out of a jam. Mm-hmm. But it usually no one ever came to Genesis with a fully finished song and just going, OK, I need you to play this, play this. You know, it was usually just like, I've got a couple of ideas for some stuff. And then everyone else would enter their input. He decided that if he was going to, you know, go through the effort of creating a whole song, he didn't want Mike and Tony's opinions to uh, taint what his vision was. Wait, so that writing method, was that the writing method during the Prague era? Yeah. Wow. They would write these really complex Prague stuff just from jams. Yeah, or again, just like they'll bring parts. People didn't didn't come to it with full ideas. Like we talked about with Firth of Fifth, it was more of like we had these several sections oh, that geez. that people brought in, and we're just like, okay, let's figure out how to put these all together. Or like with the in Supper's Ready, where you have that whole Apocalypse and Nine Eight section that really was a jam that they put on tape. True. So, so Phil kept the songs that he was writing on his own for his own career because he also knew that if it was going to be just him writing, it was going to have a different feel than what Genesis had. And so he releases the second record, Hello, I Must Be Going. It, it does pretty good. It gets him his first um, number one UK single. Mm-hmm. And then once he hits about 80... Four to eighty-five. That's when he becomes a solo megastar. I like to talk about um, how many number ones someone has in his solo career. Phil had six U.S. number ones. Wow! And he got his first one in eighty-four. That was kind of like when when he became a megastar. I would say that from like 84 to 86, few people in music history have had a, a bigger, busier time than Phil Collins did. Right, because he was doing Genesis still during their mm-hmm. height. So let's let's do a let's do a quick timeline of all the crazy things he did in that time period. Okay. So we start off 84 with the release of Genesis's self-titled record, which was their biggest one up to that point. That's got Mama and That's All and Home by the Sea, like a lot of big classic Genesis songs. Um, That's All ends up becoming their first, at that time, U.S. top 10 single. Um, And they have a huge tour. While the tour is finishing, he gets his first solo number one with Against All Odds. And it wins the Grammy for Song of the Year and gets nominated for an Oscar because it was written for a motion picture. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. And and he literally, he got the news that it was that he went to number one while he was in the middle of a seven-night run with Genesis at Wembley Stadium. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. And so, of course, right after that, he's enveloped in all that and at the same time he's working on his third solo record which was No Jacket Required 
that record comes out goes sells insanely huge it's to this day it's sold just in the u.s 25 million copies <laughs> which is a huge number that is a lot of copies that's it a lot went of it was number one on the album charts for eight weeks in a row <laughs> and got two number two more number one hits off that album with susudio and one more night wow um and of course for that record wins several more grammys <laughs> then uh appears on uh miami vice and does does like is a main character in one of the episodes so does some tv work <laughs> oh man now he's doing the side quests yeah and then live aid happens which we've talked about live aid in several other episodes yes obviously people the most famous thing with live aid was queen and their performance um we've talked about u2 at live aid um but phil had one of the most controversial several of the most controversial moments in live aid so he started off by playing at the wembley show um played with um with sting and Sting decided to improvise the lyrics while he was on stage, which everyone started to boo Phil Collins because Phil Collins was singing the right words, but Sting was singing improvised lyrics to every breath you take. And so everyone thought that Phil was getting wrong because they're not going to tell Sting that he's wrong. Mm -hmm. And then he does a performance of Against All Odds and completely fumbles the keyboard part because he was nervous and sweaty. Knees weak, arms are heavy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so he does that, and that's towards the beginning of the Wembley show. He gets on an airplane and flies to Philadelphia so he can be part of the Philadelphia show. Mm-hmm. Where he is going to be the drummer for a reunited Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Also, in between that time, he... Um, Produced and played on Robert Plant's first two solo records. Uh, produced two Eric Clapton records, as well as several other uh, records for some pretty big artists. Goodness, this man gets around. Uh huh. So yeah, he flies to Philadelphia, plays for Led Zeppelin, which actually ends up being a huge disaster. But it's not Phil's fault, although again, Phil ends up taking the blame for it. Mm-hmm. Um. Jimmy Page was whacked out of his mind on drugs that day, and Robert Plant's voice was not in uh, in battle performance. Mm-hmm. And there was a second drummer because they wanted to have a little extra power, and that ended up the other drummer thought that this was his chance to get a gig with a newly reunited Led Zeppelin, and he overplayed. Mm. And so Phil Collins intentionally simplified what he was doing because he knew that if he didn't, he was going to mess it up even more. And so the criticism he got was just like, look at Phil. He's not even playing. He's just like, come on, guys. (laughs) Can you see I was in a losing situation here? Mm -hmm. Oh, and also he um, played drums on uh, Do They Know It's Christmas, which was the the Band-Aid. Uh, I think still to this day, it's like one of the top five best-selling singles of all time. Nice. 
So he did that in winter of 84. So yeah, Live Aid, huge. I mean, he played at both shows on the same day. London and Philadelphia. Amazing. Which is insane. And then right after that, he gets back with Genesis and they do Invisible Touch where he gets another number one hit with the song Invisible Touch. Right. That and and it has that album has four top five US hits on it. Does a huge tour with them. And then on top of that gets four more US number ones with his solo career. Oh my goodness. So actually he's got seven number ones oh as a solo goodness. artist. Wow. And four of those were in a row. Like four like the singles those four singles in a row that released went to number one. That that's some serious power. Yes. So understandably, by the time you get out of the eighties, people did feel some Phil Collins fatigue. Mm-hmm. Between his huge solo career and his huge period with Genesis, like you could not escape Phil Collins during the 80s. He was all over MTV, either as a solo star with Genesis. His songs were all over the radio. He was acting in movies and TV shows, um, touring constantly. I mean, just few people, except for probably like Michael Jackson, were more visible during the 80s than Phil Collins. And he was able to handle it. Yeah. (laughs) Even with his shy personality. Uh Uh-huh. He was just someone that, like, he kept getting all these opportunities. Just like, well, I can't say no. Can you see (laughs) what they're offering me? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. I may not want to do it, but I can't say no to this. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, wow. so yeah, you get to the you get to the nineties, and that's kind of when people start to sour on Phil Collins. It didn't help that he had a very public second divorce in the nineties mm. that made him very much to look like a bad guy. Mm. As well as also his you could tell that his songwriting was getting a little tired at this point. Um you know his he, he his songs weren't as good. His albums weren't as strong. His like his last number one was in '89, and so once you get to the '90s, he didn't have any number ones anymore. The songs just weren't as strong, and um, he left Genesis, so he didn't have that anymore. And it just he kind of started to turn into just kind of the the instead of the superstar Phil Collins, he just started to become like normal old Phil Collins. And I think mm-hmm. people didn't like that because he wasn't cool anymore. He he wasn't traditionally cool in the eighties to begin with, but he still was Phil Collins. And he had that that mega stardom to where he could still like get away with it. And so mm-hmm. but I mean obviously he did the Tarzan soundtrack at the end of the nineties and that was incredible. I mean that's yeah. one of the soundtracks of my childhood for sure. Right, right. So man. So yeah, I mean quite the career. My my dad has told me repeatedly that there was probably not a better pop songwriter in the eighties than Phil. Did did he ever sleep? Like was that a thing? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> oh my goodness. Man, 
especially yeah that period from 84 to 86 to 87 is when when i was learning about him just seeing everything he did i was just like i don't know how he did it and he even claims that he looks back he's just like did i really do all that in such a short amount of time Hmm. he's like i don't know i don't know how i did it i don't know how i'm still alive (laughs) well he probably stayed sober yes he did that was a big part of it yeah that that can help you know so ironically he didn't become uh, a substance abuser until after he retired don't do drugs kids well he he became an alcoholic alcohol is a drug too kids that's that's true (laughs) yeah he he had a rough 2010s Mm. but he he's good now well, good. Well, because he's obviously he's. No, he's not coming back. No, he is coming back. Yeah, he's he he and he and he had a he had a, a comeback solo tour a couple years ago. Nice. That I was I was really salty that I didn't get to go to. Oh. Yeah, yeah. If I was as big of uh, Phil Collins fan as you. Yeah, but so the Genesis show is my opportunity finally for the first time to get to see him live. Hey, I mean, maybe he'll like make eye contact with you or something. You know, maybe I don't know where my seats are, but that would be life changing. That you would be. <laughs> Phil Collins looked at me. Man, I mean, have you seen those videos of those? You know, I mean, especially like Metallica. Sometimes you know when uh-huh. some some kid will be in the front row and like James will point at him and he'll start crying and be like James Hetfield noticed me because you know like that kid's gonna remember it for the rest of his life. You know? Oh yeah. So I don't know. It's like when you reach that level, like there's some good and some bad things like Snoop Dogg. Like, what's he doing right now? He's just on every show. He has like his own game show now. With his bestie, Martha Stewart. Yeah. like <laughs> You know, like, I feel like he's he's at the at the level of superstardom where you just like he just is Snoop Dogg. Mm-hmm. I feel like when you were going through like some of the things that Phil Collins was doing, that's that's kind of the the vibe that I got that he was yeah. just kind of he he was really really good at the music thing so now he can do music and just some other fun stuff being in shows and and doing live aid in two different continents you know on the same so, day on the same day yeah yeah with these really legendary bands you know playing with Sting and playing with uh, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. It's... Clapton. Golly. That is amazing. Yeah. Like Clapton's like one of his best friends. That is so cool. And so is Robert Plant. That is so cool. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I feel like he, I don't know. He he reaches that level of just, of of personality. Oh, and he was really good. And he was really good friends with Prince Charles during that time too. And I'm sure he's just like, you know, a decent guy. Yeah, he he played or arranged for all the music at at his birthday party every year during the '80s. Prince Charles. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, he has he has led an incredible life and career it's it's astounding when i really started to dig in just going wow look at all he did and then and then on top of that to have seven number one hits i mean it's just that's 
that's the level of you know you don't no one does that well phil collins that's rare (laughs) yeah this is starting to turn into i don't know it's starting to starting to feel like a beatles episode yeah this and this and this and this you know and all of those bullet points being very very important very Uh cool things you know i mean if i had played live aid or the equivalent one time for one song for a band that had a member that was unable to make it for whatever reason i that would be like the height of my you know musical achievement i would just quit music i would just say that's it I've, i did I've, it i've really done it i am a professional musician but like to oh my goodness and then he did other stuff he was on tv anyway i should stop <laughs> i should stop man man oh man and to hear that he was sober and he was a he was a real dave Grohl. yeah about it that's real good. nice guy that's good so let's but talk the- about that really sucks about his personal life though like the, I know. the divorces was that because like were all of them because he was so busy like if yeah really i mean down. the the thing that ultimately always boiled down to is that he tended to choose his career over his family mm. but it was just again it was all out of a he just he didn't know how to say no and so every time this huge offer would come to him he'd be like well i can't say no to this this is a once in a lifetime opportunity but he could have said no. Has he ever said he's regretted those? Oh yeah, because he knows why. Why? Mm. Why they fell apart each time. That's mm. sad. Yeah, but let's uh, let's talk about what the difference between Genesis and Phil Collins' solo career, like what yes. like the musical. So it's my understanding, just from a basic standpoint that Genesis's uh, pop era was still a little bit more post-prog, whereas Phil Collins' solo career was a lot more R&B. I hope I'm using that term correctly. Yeah, well, just uh, just soul in general. Motown. He's a huge Motown guy. In fact, his most recent album, which will very much likely be his last record that he ever releases, was the Motown's cover album. Oh, cool. And his first uh, UK number one was You Can't Hurry Love, which was a cover of The Supremes. Oh, wow. So, um, Soul and Motown was like, was always one of the center influences in his life. That's what he grew up listening to. That's what he learned to play drums to so that's a very strong influence on him um he was really big into earth wind and fire and that's the horn the horn section that plays on those early records of his that's that's who he got was their horn section oh that's awesome oh wow that's amazing so yeah he the thing, the big thing with Genesis, and again, this is a misconception that I want to kind of put to rest, is that they didn't go pop because Phil started to write pop songs. 
they had already veered pretty far into pop territory before Phil even started writing songs to begin with. Right. One of the things that surprised me the most is that he didn't write any songs for Genesis until Duke, which is in 1980. Mm-hmm. And by that time, he had already written a good amount of his solo album, although he hadn't released it yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, everyone always says, oh, Phil took them, you know, once his solo career started going, he started making Genesis pop as well. That's the direction that Tony and Mike always wanted to go in. And instead of Phil making them write pop music, instead, Tony and Mike was just like, hey, we've got a pop songwriter among us. We need to start using him more. Oh, you just said among us. That's going to get all the Gen Z kids to go crazy. Uh, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. I noticed it, so it's just how it is. Um, but yeah, so it it was never Phil having to steer. It's why there are some songs in the Genesis pop career that you can tell Phil wrote. Like you can tell that Phil had a big part in the song Invisible Touch or a big part in throwing it all away. Um, those kinds of songs that are just like you, you, you can just tell because he was at a he was on such a winning streak at that point mm-hmm. that it was going to bleed into Genesis, but his music has always remained incredibly personal to him, where the Genesis tends to be less so. Genesis lyrics tend to be a little bit more abstract, a little more storytelling. Mm-hmm. Where Phil in his solo career is usually always singing about what is going on personally in his life at that moment. And that's probably why it's so relatable and he's gotten so many number ones. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, they... like talking about our, our Foo Fighters episode. Yeah, he. How that's his music related to people as well. Yeah, he always talks about how he writes from the heart first and the head second. Ooh, that is a quote. That is a quote. Well, I guess you did just quote him, so yeah, it is. Where Genesis tends to write from the head first, mm-hmm. because again, it's it's more about the music first and about parts and jamming. With Phil, he's coming very much from like I'm just going to pour out the music that I have in my heart. That that very uh, cerebral head music. There's a place for that. And Phil Collins is very good at it. I mean, we just had a whole episode about his really technical drumming. But it's it's good to see that he can do both. I mean, very few do, uh, very few times you find a musician that can do both those things. So, yeah. and even even fewer can marry the two. And I would argue that, you know, this is not just oh, I have great lyrics. I'm going to stick, you know, three chords behind it i mean there's some good music here too it's not the technical cerebral you know post prog right mm-hmm. but it's this is pure pop it's good and that's good music yeah no you will not find a hint of prog anywhere in phil collins solo career no that's it's, that's it's what, just it's not there that's what drove me crazy when i was listening to this first 
um, or listening to the set that we're going to get to in a minute, it was like I was hearing the low-tech drum machines mm-hmm. and I was waiting for the, you know, maybe more technical drum fills or maybe a different type signature here or there, skip a beat here, little run here. That didn't happen. Mm-mm. Like, it was... It this felt like almost like a Hall and Oates, like, yeah, track list. So, I don't know, and that that made me feel a little weird. But we can we can get to that when we later. Not weird in a bad way. It just was new. So yeah, yeah. You're just you're not gonna find Sonic explorations in Phil Collins' solo career. Um, but the thing you can always count on with Phil is that he's gonna make sure that he's got some great drums. Some great sounding drums. Yes, and a and a large variety of drum sounds. There's this is true, yeah. You know, one of the one of the the classic things is that you can always count on a great drum intro. I I I realized afterwards that like sixty percent of his songs start off with some kind of drum fill before the rest of the music comes in. So you would argue that he is still treating the drums as a lead instrument. Yes, just not in the show-off technical way that he did in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Rather, he's he's creating hooks with the drums. Ooh. Think of the intro to the studio. Boo, ba, do, baga, bagu, ba, do, do, gotta, bow, and then the instruments come in. Or you've got a, I wish it would rain down. Boo, ba, do, ba, do, da, ga. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got that fill at the beginning of uh, something happened on the way to heaven, or um, two hearts starts with a. Um, obviously, you've got the 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 drum machine of uh, in the air tonight. Do go um, I mean, take me home is just a masterclass of drum program looping. Yeah, that um, that's true. You've got the you've got the fills at the beginning of Easy Lover, and um, you've got that great drum introduction on Against All Odds. Do ba do ga ga do ba ba do ba ba boom. Um, I could I could keep going. It's just it's he he has taken the drums and made them a moment of itself, and of course, obviously the most iconic one is that drum break. Towards the end of in the air tonight, ba 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 da ba da ba da boom boom. You know, I'll note the coolest thing here is that you're able to sing the drums, number yep. one, but also that you're able to like remember, like it's memorable drum fills. You don't think about like drum fills being singable or memorable because he's also not uh just it's not just the rhythm but again it's the sound he always is experimenting with what sounds can he use yeah like it's it's not always just going to be a dry drum sound he's always experimenting with how can i make these sound interesting yeah i mean when you think about like a drum fill you don't Usually, you'll come away with the feeling of, oh, that was a really cool flurry of notes that sounded cool put together. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to remember each individual hit. And it was weird to hear such, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but such slow drum fills. 
you know? Yeah. So, and, and it's kind of like how, uh, I'm going back to dream theater again. I can't stop talking about dream theater, you know, but, uh, mm. at the, at the end of Octavarium or a better example at the end of, uh, Firth of Fifth, right. You have that, um, very strong guitar melody it doesn't uh-huh. sound like a guitar solo like super shreddy and whatever that everybody would be like you know screaming and throwing their hands in the air and trying to get on stage and oh my gosh he looked at me kind of you know stardom but it's memorable and it's singable and it's still a guitar solo so i don't know even seeing a lot tra- of seeing that translate to drums is really cool even a lot of the Genesis songs of that period started to take on that characteristic as well. With the drums, you mean? Yeah. You've got Mama. That's like the whole, that whole song is propelled by a drum machine rhythm. Ooh. You've got the, that, that, um, that constant drum machine loop on tonight, tonight, tonight. I'll save you the the me butchering it, continuing to make these drum sounds. But that's another one you can hear. Boo, paco, boo, 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 bow, bow. Man, Lucas uh, is excited, guys. Yeah, Invisible Touch sounds starts off with a drum fill. Oh, we're gonna hear it. Now I'll I'll, I'll start <laughs> oh, this like no. you out with that one. Um, just a job to do starts off with a great drum fill it's just you can you can tell now that that's what he's gravitating towards is the singable fill yeah so well let's let's talk about some singable fills in our next segment yeah i think this yeah i think that'd be a good time to go ahead and take a break here when we come back we're going to talk about the six songs that we have picked for this phil collins solo career episode so stay tuned We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. Last segment, we talked a lot about Phil Collins and his amazing run from 84 to 86 and everything else that was great about his monolithic solo career and the fact that he balanced it with Genesis. We are focusing solely on his solo career. If you want to listen to... Um, Phil Collins and Genesis. We do have an episode on that. It was about almost two years ago now, I think. So definitely you want to go check that out if that's what you want to listen to. But as for Phil Collins' solo career, we're going to talk about those songs. Now, if you want to listen to these songs, there is a link in every episode to a Spotify playlist that have has every single song from every single episode. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Listen to these songs. You might get something out of it that you never got before, even if you've already heard every single one of them so just putting them in this order we'll probably get something else out of it uh lucas picks these songs to have a great flow from start to finish they should be a great introduction to the artists that we're talking about each week in this case phil collins and without further ado let's get to our first song something happened on the way to heaven yes quite a long title Quite a long title. There are quite a long titles in this in this uh Yeah. In this episode. Man, what you want to talk about just starting off right with just a huge blast of emotion. Yeah, this was kind of subverting my expectations. I'm not gonna lie. I did not expect this to be what I heard. What what were you expecting? I I something a little bit more subtle. <laughs> you know. 
something because probably again your your main thought of Phil Collins was stuff like in the air tonight. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't picture like the big band piano kind of atmosphere, and it was super well produced. Oh yeah. So this was from his fourth album, which came out in 89, which was like his last huge record. Mm-hmm. This is, but seriously, is an incredible record. I think it's one of his best ones. And it was mm-hmm. kind of like, it was like, that was like his, everything that he had learned up to that point was kind of distilled into one record. Ooh, that is nice. And it was, it was a, it was a culmination point of his career in general between him and Genesis. That was kind of like his last great you know, body of music. It's a real rust in peace, I guess you could say. Yeah. So it was a, it was a huge album. Obviously we'll have another song from this album later on as well. Was this a double album? Double record? You know, I, I haven't looked to see if it was a double record, but the, with with the number of songs and how long some of the songs are, I don't see it fitting on a single record. But also with the fact that it was in 89, CDs were coming out at this point. Yeah. So I'm wondering if this was a CD release. I mean, we could just look it up real quick. <laughs> no, Google yeah. it. Yeah. But I don't feel like it. All right. Well, I'll do that for you then. Okay. Here we go, Google. Um, it looks like I don't know how to tell. Oh, the, yeah. The length is – it's got CD length. Yeah, yeah, fifty nine forty two. That's so. that's what I figured because it was just I was looking. I was just like, "There's not enough here for a double record," but it's also way too long to be a single record. Well, I wouldn't say way too long. I would say it's like just long enough to not be on a single vinyl. Now this is something interesting that I just realized. The cover for this, he looks. You know, he's got sunken cheeks. He looks kind of older. Uh-huh. But yeah. if, you, if you look on the Google, it's a different image. He looks um, much younger. In 2015, he redid all of his album covers with the way that he looked at that point. Ah. Uh, Which I'm I wish that the originals were on there just cuz that's that's the actual image. Like on Spotify you can't look at any of them that have the the original album art on it. Mm. That's why, yeah, that's why he looks like he's in his 70s on all of them, because he is. Okay, that makes sense, then. That's why he's got the Johnny Cash look. Uh-huh. Gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, uh, Something Happened on the Way to Heaven has always been one of my favorite Phil Collins songs. Man, and I can it's, see why. Surprisingly, it's not the song that leads off the record. Ooh, but it's just the energy that this has and the and that introduction with the horns and that piano and then you you get into the verse and it, you can definitely hear the roots of what he would do with Tarzan. Yeah. Uh it's got a very Tarzan uh melody to it with that guitar It kind of sounds a little bit like uh, strangers like me. Mhm. Um and the thing that I always have loved about Phil Collins' music is just the unabashed emotion that he sings with. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just right here at the front, you just you get a great, um, a great dose of that. This kind of song is 
I would say probably the most representative of what Phil Collins' solo music sounds like. Really? Yes. Well, then it makes sense to put it at the front. Because I actually originally was going to have a different song at the front. I was going to do Susudio. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that you don't really... Susudio is is an incredibly electronic sounding song. Mm -hmm. It has the horns, which is one of the trademark things about Phil Collins' music is that he always has lots of horns. Really? Oh my Uh god. Yeah, I know nothing then. But then I but then I thought about it, I was just like, if I put this here, I feel like this will be more representative of who Phil Collins is as an artist because that's 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 the majority of his music is this kind of stuff. Man, then I'm gonna I'm gonna like my after episode listening. Yeah. Cause this is like this is really good. It's it's top notch. Oh my gosh, yes it is. And this is the Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, I don't. Brass I, section. I don't think it is at this point. Okay. Um, I know for sure it was on the first couple records, but I don't think that they were still with him by '89. Ah. But I mean, at this point, he could literally get whoever he wanted. Yeah, that is true. It just happened to be that when he was making his first solo careers, he had already made friends with those guys. And so he was just like, you know, before he even was famous, he was like, hey, you want to come play on my record? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. Didn't think mm-hmm. much of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, this, this song was originally written for a movie, which I was really surprised to find throughout this how many movies he had written for. I, obviously, everyone knows that he did Tarzan. Mm-hmm. And and Brother Bear as well. That one's a little less popular, but still everyone knows that he did that. Mm. But I was really surprised to find out how many movies he had written for. And the fact that, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four of his seven number one hits were soundtrack songs. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So that this... Now, this was the, not written from like a personal perspective. It was. Oh, every time that he wrote uh, songs for the movies, he still they were usually songs that he had already written but didn't know what to do with. And then when he was approached with the song, he's just like, "Oh wait, I've got this song that I have that I haven't finished yet. Let me tweak the lyrics a little bit, and then here it is." Okay, so there was still some lyric tweaking, but it had basis in reality. It was still based in his experiences. They just have he just found songs that fit also what would fit with the movie. Now, the movie that this was written for ended up actually not being used because it didn't fit the tone of the movie. Okay. But he was just like, Well, I'll just use it for my album. <laughs> Mark. I mean it's a great song. This was a top five single, although it didn't go number one. Ooh. There's actually going to, of his seven, there's only going to be one of his number ones on this list. Yeah, it's kind of obvious which one. Well, because I said so earlier. Well, yeah. Okay, but I still reduced using my brain power. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this, this is just such a phenomenal song. Let's let's talk about, and I talk about this in our Phil Collins Genesis episode about the Phil Collins Bridge. 
because one of the things that I love the most about Phil Collins songwriting is that he, I don't think I've ever heard anyone else write better bridges than him. The bridge sometimes is a throwaway part to a song just because people will put in a bridge because they just need something else to have to get them to the guitar solo, get to the guitar solo or get us to the, to the last chorus. Mm -hmm. Phil Collins manages to make the bridge the most important part of the song. Yeah, that's true. And it's not like it's a repeated part. Like this bridge in particular ends in a different place. Kind of, you know, it it gets then, us back to that intro, right? It ends in a different place than it began. It was it was progressive, you know, and it didn't it didn't quite sit in the like four bar repeat, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Template. Yeah, it was it was it was very ingenious. It it flowed. Yeah, it was more he strain is- of thought. He's written so many incredible bridges, and that's it ends up always being like the most important part of the song because it's always that it's that it's he uses it as a turning point to get us to the big emotional climax of the song. Ooh, yeah, well, because it could be the emotional climax of this song is when that horn part comes back in from the intro. That's kind of the moment where we're just like, oh crap. <laughs> I don't know about oh crap, but like, okay, maybe yeah, more like oh man, this is a good song. Yeah. Oh wow. And we'll talk about some other bridges whenever we get to some of them later. Mm-hmm. There's one in particular that, and I, you you probably know which one it is. That bridge is just insane. Uh, it's like a yeah, song maybe. to the level. Maybe. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. Guess we'll find out. <laughs> oh boy. But yeah, it's 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 a great song. There's there's this is gonna be one of those episodes where there's not gonna be a whole lot to dissect about the music because it's very straightforward, it's very pop. Right, right. Um, but I mean we're just we're gonna say fifty million times in this segment, oh it's such a good song. It's a good song, it's a good song. But they are. They are. Oh my gosh. Now, if there's nothing left to say about something happened on the way to heaven, I would like to hear the story of our next song. Yes, because it's, it, it's, it's a not, bit of a unique one. Right. It's not, I did not know this was a Phil Collins song. It was like all over, you know, pop radio, at least when I used to listen to the radio, you know, a lot more. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know this was a Phil Collins song. I knew like, pretty much the whole song uh, because I guess it would just be playing a lot when I was a kid or something. This is this is probably one of the first songs I can remember knowing the melody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess like how how did it get to this point? Because it's, it's, it's a Philip Bailey song. It's off of his album. So how did Phil Collins get on there? So Philip Bailey is the singer for Earth, Wind, and Fire. So this was a ah. solo album. So obviously by this point, because this came out in 84, mm-hmm. and um, it's funny because this went to number one in the UK and went to number two in the US. Mm. And it went number one in the UK right when he won the Oscar. Or no, he didn't because he didn't win the Oscar for But like right when the awards were 
going out and right when no jacket required came out he went to number one with easy lover in the uk man so he produced that record for philip because he was at that time like because he was the new big thing everyone was calling him hey do my record do my record you're gonna get the drums to sound great do my record Mm -hmm. and so philip bailey was one of the people likely because of his connection to their horn to earth wind and fire's horn section that they recommend just like hey you gotta work with phil he's awesome Mm -hmm. he said that when he worked with him that they could not get anything done and that just that just they were they kept coming across roadblock after roadblock and finally they just sat down and started jamming and that's where easy lover came in and they said that they literally did it in like 30 minutes wait what do you what do you mean they couldn't get anything done like they they were adversarial or they were just they just they just were they were uh i guess like i guess just creatively stonewalled like they just they were just having a trouble gelling together. Not I wouldn't say it was adversarial at all. But oh, just, they just couldn't connect. They just weren't connecting. But then, you know, they just they sat down and Easy Lover just happened. Oh, that's and he, awesome. And he said that they recorded a demo of the backing track for it, and the backing track is what ended up being the actual take of the song. It's awesome. That is so yeah. Because I was I was listening to it and I'm thinking, man, the music here is kind of simple. Like I feel like there could be a little bit more active bass line, maybe you know. But at the same time, those vocals are just layered and layered and layered, and that's a catchy tune. Oh man, it's it's one of my favorite songs to sing along to. Yeah, it's one of my favorite songs to pretend I can sing along to. <laughs> yeah i don't have you, that quite right quite that high right. you got the fill and the fill part that's true and you probably have some drum fills here and there you know yeah <laughs> so yeah this 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 was a huge song for and this is this is kind of in the same situation as like with when we did the bruno mars episode how you had uptown funk that's technically a mark ronson song but it's become bruno's song Mm-hmm. This was a Philip Bailey song, but it really became Phil Collins' song. Mm-hmm. It's on all of his uh, greatest hits compilations. He plays it at every show. When he did his big comeback tour, this was his encore song. So this ended the night with. This wasn't like a situation where Philip Bailey wrote the whole song. Hey, I'll have Phil Collins sing on it to make it more popular. Like they both were the the creative force in this song. Yes, and, the song did not exist until they sat down and started jamming. And Philip Bailey is is not, um, I guess, mad that Phil Collins is kind of claiming it as his own. No, not that there's, I know of. There's no contempt there. It's like it is their collective song. Because it really is 50-50. I mean, vocal-wise, you can hear that it's a pretty even split on oh, yeah. everything. And I guess Phil recorded the drums? Yes. Well, obviously he did. They they recorded it together. Who else would drum? Who would drum instead of Phil Collins, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. But, boy. yeah, you we get, a, we get a rare guitar solo in a Phil Collins song as well. I mean, we had a little bit of one in the last song just kind of the outro it but yeah kind of guitar solos are are rare in phil collins songs i'll just 
leave it at that. So, but again, it's you. It's technically not a Phil Collins song, but it also is. It's a very strange situation. But I mean, just it's as history has gone on. This is this has become Phil Collins' song more than Philip Bailey's, just because Philip Bailey never had another huge hit like that. Hmm. And so, and because the, because Phil Collins is so heavily featured on it. It's just, it's ended up kind of as time has gone on, become his song. And one of his biggest, most well known songs. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, because this is one of the first songs I can remember knowing the melody. <laughs> so obviously, it had to be big. But man, yeah, it is. It's strange how that backing track was the demo. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's tight. Yeah, it feels complete. It doesn't feel like a demo. No, it does not. So, which because we talk about demos all the time in the in the bad music podcast. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we just did talk about a couple of demos in our previous one. So, yeah, go check that out on Patreon, guys. Nice little plug there. Yeah, that wasn't shameless at all. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, but, we can move on to the next one. Yes. I uh, wish I wish it would move on to the next one. <laughs> I, didn't, so, I thought I you actually, were going to either say that or you were just going to say the name of the song. I actually, I actually don't. I really like Easy Lover, but I really do like I Wish It Would Rain Down. So we're back on, but seriously. And this one kind of sounds somewhere between, like, Spirit Carries On and Red Rain. It's got yeah. a lot of orchestration, but it's real nice and slowed down now. And it's got rain in it. And it's got rain in it. But it kind of sounds like the melody of Red Rain. You know what I mean? I I guess I could. Just a little bit, that. just here and there. I don't know. A little more maybe, optimistic than Red Rain. May, maybe my brain is making connections where it really there aren't any, just because Peter Gabriel's on the brain. But you just said, I guess in passing, not really, that um, this is more optimistic than Red Rain. So, I mean, that... just because it's not, it's not as dark and heavy. Red Rain is a pretty dark and heavy song. There's mm -hmm. not really a lot of light in it. So, the light here. I mean, obviously, there's some in the music, but what would the lyrics be about? So I mean I mean pretty much this is this is a standard breakup song. This is this is him continuing to mine that that failed first marriage because he was happily married to his second wife at the time that he wrote this song. Mm -hmm. But this is just about that time after after you broke up with someone you still miss them. Mhm. Mm you you realize it's kind of that it's almost like that point of acceptance like you 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 accept that it's happened because this is post breakup it's not mid breakup that this song takes place because mm -hmm. he talks about i passed you by as a friend mm -hmm. uh never thought i'd see you again um and so he's this is like accepting what has happened but at the same time, still feeling sad about it. Gotcha, kind of like, gotcha. it's going to rain, 
so I might as well just let it soak me. Oh man, that's kind of that's kind of deep. Now we've got a we've got a, a famous guitar player here. I wonder if you can guess who it is. Um. No. It's Clapton. No way. Yeah. I would have not guessed that at all. I was I was pretty shocked when I found out as well. But then it, it made sense when I found out that they were like literally best friends. It doesn't it doesn't sound like the Clapton that I listened to. But, but it was one of the things after I found out and I listened to it, I was just like, okay, yeah, it's Clapton. Especially all that stuff that he does towards the end of the song. That brand and a brand and a brand, like those bends and it's it's just like, oh yeah, this is definitely Clapton. That's true. That that very bluesy approach to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Blues mixed with gospel. That's so cool. Well, see, that's what I mean by it. it sounds like spirit carries on is because like it's got that gospel choir and it's got the the reverby guitar and it's nice and cathartic. Yeah, mid-tempo, you know? lots of space. Right, it's so it's you've got so those, well produced. You've got those verses where there's like barely anything happening. Right. I mean, he's got the bass and the drums and he's got those long periods where where there's no vocals, he's letting it breathe. But yeah. then also just whenever that first chord of the chorus comes in, it just hits you. Oh, yeah. And that final chorus when he like goes way up and then now, oh, ooh, he's really riffing on the chords. Oh, man. So good, dude. So this was I... the bridge that I was talking about earlier. When the bridge on this song, when it goes into that halftime. Mm. And he and that's that first moment where he starts to really go into that other voice. Mm, that that kind of high voice, yeah. Uh-huh. I always and that's a that's a standard Phil Collins writing uh trait. One of his characteristics of ways that he writes songs is he loves to have those moments where it's like for the first two verses and choruses, he's like staying at this level and again that's why he's so good at bridges he the bridge is always his opportunity to take things up a notch mm-hmm. it's what he does on two hearts it's what he does on tonight 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 um he does it in one more night um it's just that's just what he that's what he does best i'm surprised you didn't put this one at the end because I, it's so cathartic. It is cathartic, and th- and that's why I wanted to have it in the middle. Is is I kind of wanted to like, kind of have like this big moment, but at the same time, it's going to lead us really well into the next part of the set, our uh, more mellow side. True, it does. It really does lead us into that part. So I guess this song wasn't necessarily one of those where it was written for like a movie or written with anyone else. This is, this is kind of our first of the set where it was truly written for himself. Yes. Good. It's good. Good to hear those kind of songs. So if there's nothing else, 
we can move on to the next we're re- one. We're really flying through these today. We are, but... We had a great first section, I think, is, we, is what happened. Yeah, we did. So, um, so now let's talk about the number one hit on this set. Really? Yep, and it was his first number one. Okay. Against all odds, take a look at me now. I honestly would have pegged this one as the deep track. No. This is... This is this rivals in the air tonight as one of his most famous and beloved songs. I don't know. I felt like I kept forgetting this one was on the set. Oh man. I, this, this is one of my all time favorite Phil songs and it's my dad's all time favorite Phil song. Maybe I just need to get educated on the, on the lyrics and the story. This is, this is often considered one of the biggest most popular power ballads of the 80s. It's one of the go-to breakup songs. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is this is a ubiquitous huge ballad. Again, this was this was the song that started his superstar period. Wow, yeah, that's a good point. So did you did you mention that this was um, for a movie, or is that yes? Movie? It was another but nice. <laughs> he wrote. He originally wrote the song during the making of his first record. Oh, and he just he refit it, kind of. Yeah, it originally it was called "How Can I Just Let You Walk Away," mm. and he did not think that it was going to be anything special. He considered it a B side. And he he jokes it just like it just shows what I know. I didn't know that I had written a number one hit. <laughs> I thought that this was this was this wasn't good enough to make my first or my second album. Mm-hmm. He's like, thank goodness that I wasn't the one that chose what the singles were. Mm-hmm. But he was he was approached by the director and asked if he would write a song that would also serve as the theme of the movie. And he was just like, well. I do have this song that is not quite finished yet, and I haven't known what to do with it. Can I play you the demo and see what you think? So he played the demo, and he's just like, oh, my gosh, we have to do this. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, oh, okay. And so he uh, rearranged, because the movie is called Against All Odds. Mm-hmm. And so he had to, he had to add that little part in. And hmm. so went to LA, cut the song like in a day. Wow. And was just thinking, okay, cool. We just recorded a song. Did he had no idea that it was gonna be this huge song? He says that he still gets letters from people saying that this song was what got them through their saddest times in life. Wow. So what's what's the nuance of the song then? Right. So like it's a breakup song, but like what's the angle? You know what I mean? I think it's just it's that it's that pure raw emotion. Mm-hmm. I would say that this is probably in Genesis or in his solo career, that's probably the best chorus that he's ever written. It is mm. it's so melodically and m- lyrically powerful. Like that's the song that every time I listen to the set that I kind of walked away singing. Take a look at me now. So so weird because I never like in listening to this set I never at the end was like 
man, that was like the best song on this set. You need to take another listen to it. I mean, I'm I'm listening to it now, and I'm I'm understanding now, giving it like a like a really good critical listen. I get it now. But, yeah. Huh. I maybe maybe it was just the context, and me. Maybe had just you know listened to "I Wish It Would Rain Down" and being like, "Ha ha, sounds like red rain," you know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean this this is one of the big ones. Evidently so. It's it's not on Spotify as it as its own single. It's on the singles. Yeah. Album, well, yeah. None of his singles are standalone. You can listen to it on Spotify. You have to listen to it on the compilations. That's fine. It's Spotify. <laughs> the music is the music. Yeah, I just this song is just it's so powerful. I feel like. He was really able to just bring to words just pure raw emotion, mm-hmm. and that, and that's what connected people to it. Mm-hmm. It's it wasn't it wasn't overly um, artistic, poetic. It was just it was just real, and that's the thing that Phil also always talked about. He never liked to use metaphors or abstract language. He always loved to write his lyrics as very conversational, very matter of the fact, direct. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He didn't want to like go into oh well this here's what this hidden meaning could be, and I'm gonna hide this and that. Is I was just like, I'm just going to write plainly exactly how I feel. And I'm going to write the way that I would speak to someone in a normal day-to-day conversation. That's kind of how pop music is. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't write music for the masses that has these hidden meanings and this puzzle piece, you know, because most people aren't going to want to take the time to do that. Yeah. You know, so maybe it was very smart of him to, to do that. Maybe maybe less smart of him and convenient that he did do that because obviously he's writing this music for himself. He's not necessarily trying to yeah, get super famous. Cause yeah, this song was, in, was part of that initial batch of songs that he was writing as a way to communicate how he felt to his ex-wife. Right. And so he was trying to make it as direct as possible yeah. because he, if he could play this for her, she would instantly know exactly what he thought. And that's the thing that the audience was able to do as well. They, You listen to it one time and you know exactly what it's saying. And it allows them to latch onto it and go, I feel this too. I know what this feels like. Wow. It's pretty powerful to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Man. And of course, we've got that great drum break that comes in in the middle of the song. Um, or whatever it is. Yeah. And you know you've got to think that that's one of the um, one of the things that set the standard for kind of the dramatic '80s drum fill and the power ballad. Yeah, I that mean, that and faithfully. Ballad. Yeah, because I mean, really, even by '84, which when this came out, the power ballad was still not as established thing. The power ballad is much more of a. 90s. Of a second half of the '80s thing. That's true. It was still all about the dance songs in the first part of the '80s. Mm-hmm. But once you get into like yeah, '85, '86, a lot of your big number ones are your big power ballads. 
And that's when, you know, hair metal started to do them. And every rock group, every rock album had to have a big power ballad on it because that was going to be what was your big marketable single. Mm-hmm. But uh, Take a Look at Me Now was kind of like one of the first really big 80s power ballads. Wow. And against all odds, actually not against all odds, did it become a great song? It's, it's got good good parts to it. Yeah. There's no reason why it shouldn't become a great song. So. Again, that chorus, it works. It really yeah. works. Listening to it again, I get it. I get it now. I we'll have to see if it takes my number one slot at the final thoughts, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. Let's move on to the one that everyone's going to be expecting for us to talk about. Yes, and the, that is the famous one. And and how about that transition? We've got that. We've got that that somber, intimate ending, and then that drum machine just comes right in out of the side. Yeah. yeah. I was, I'm not, before this episode, I wasn't very familiar with this song. This is in the air tonight, by the way. I don't think we've said that yet. But I wasn't familiar with the construction of this song. I knew, you know, because normally I'd be flipping through channels on the radio, right? And then I would hear the chorus and I'd be like, oh, it's this song. It's the Phil Collins song, right? And so I would know the chorus, is i've obviously was familiar with that drum break towards the end but when it came in with the drum machine i'm like i have not heard this part before maybe this is like an extended non-radio edit version or something no this is this is the version this is the version so mm-hmm. um finally being able to sit down and listen to it which that's crazy that you had never heard the whole song before no no i would it was only the chorus and the drum break that really stuck out of my mind. I think that's, I think. A Did lot it surprise you how far into the song it happened? Yes. Oh my gosh. Every time he ended the verse, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be it. And no. And I kept wanting to like drum it on my steering wheel or whatever, right? And it's just, it wouldn't be there. And I felt kind of disappointed. And then when it finally. When it finally hit, I'm like, oh, that was so satisfying. So, yeah, he waits. He waits the perfect amount of time for it. Yeah, and you can kind of you can kind of tell too that he's about to do it because things kind of suddenly like drop just a little bit for like half a second, and then it's do 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 do, you know. So it's is really well done, and it's very like this whole song. Obviously, is very ambient. Yes. Very quiet, very subtle, very uh, midnight. So, um, this this song I would say is probably the most experimental Phil ever was in his solo career. Wow! Rarely yeah. ever did he write a song that was this unique sounding. I mean, in the air tonight, there's nothing else that sounds like in the air tonight. Well, Bon Iver. Even still, though, <laughs> like to combine those atmospheric, dark, dreadful moods with those huge drums. Yeah. And just the way it's constructed, 
Um, it's not in your typical verse chorus format. Phil has said that the reason why it's so unique is because he still didn't know quite how to write a song yet. And That's so he didn't, he didn't know what rules he could or couldn't break. And so he was just like, this is a song that I could never write now because I would be thinking too hard about it. This was a yeah. song that just in the moment felt right. And I did it because and, and I didn't know how to do it any better. And that's mm -hmm. what contributed to its unique sound. And so, it's got like, some really interesting, like vocal effects that are happening. Sounds like there's a vocoder, uh -huh. some delay, some reversed reverb, some really cool stuff that he's doing. That, like, in a home studio, you wouldn't think to do. Maybe it's just a. Maybe it's just like no. He didn't. He didn't do this whole song in the home studio. Just the demo, oh, okay. but. That that drum machine was the drum machine from the demo track because he said that that was one of the presets that came with it. And he heard it and was just like, oh, that's really cool sounding. And he initially planned to later put real drums on top of it. But then he kept thinking about it. I was just like a real drum groove would take away from the atmosphere of this. Let's just keep that initial drum sound. Mm -hmm. and um and so yeah he had heard the drum that the drum beat was the first thing that came to him and then he came up with the chord progression and then the lyrics he literally made up on the spot mm. and it's the same lyrics with like a couple of small tweaks the same lyrics that he did in that improvised so he said that he actually there's no meaning to this song Oh, that is weird. That he literally just... Now, of course, he says probably subconsciously, you know, this is about my failed marriage and about, you know, what what I was going through, but that wasn't intentional. Because you... I've heard... This is one of those songs that's got so many popular conspiracy theories. Like, I remember as a kid hearing the story that Phil Collins witnessed a, someone being drowned... It's like someone being murdered and the, the killer looked at him and, and like told him to keep quiet. Mm -hmm. But I, that lyric, but I know the reason why you keep the science up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I was there and I saw what you did. I saw it with my own two eyes. And the legend was that he, after the song came out and became big, that he found the guy and gave him a ticket to his concert. And when he sung in the air tonight, he put a spotlight on him and stared at him the whole time. And that the guy afterwards went back to his room and hung himself. And none of this happened. That's not true at all. <laughs> but I remember hearing that when I was like in eighth grade, like right when I started to get into the song. And I believed it at that point. Because, you know, an eighth grader is going to believe what an adult tells them. Yeah, that, that's how eighth grade works. Yeah, it's not about it's not about that. It's not about um, him wanting to kill his uh, ex-wife's lover, or about wanting to kill her. Like it's 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 not about any of that. It's just about the fact that like he was so mad at her that he's like, if you told me you were drowning, I would not lend a hand. That's the contempt he felt for her, but obviously he didn't mean that literally. Mm-hmm. And he's just, and he says that he says if he can try and find a meaning for what that line coming in the air tonight, 
would be is just that he felt like maybe that it was him saying that he feels that a change is coming. Well, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of become gotten to become one of those mystical, um, endlessly debated lyrics. Even after Phil has repeatedly come out and told them over and over again, stop debating about it. It doesn't mean anything. People keep trying to tell him, oh, come on, you're just saying that. What's it really about, Phil? And he's just like, I told you. it. I just made it up on the spot. Man. He said that he's encountered people that have done, like, college papers, dissecting every syllable, every, um, every like, pronun- like, the pronunciation and the rhythm of it. And, like, it has all these decoded hidden meanings. And he was just like, this is ridiculous. You know, it would be really cool to find a song like that, but you're not going to find it in 80s pop. Mm-mm. You know? But so, maybe, yeah. This... Maybe, maybe that individual should stick with, like, a like a Rush song. You know? <laughs> or, like, a yeah. Devin Townsend song. Something that where there's a lot of, you know, puzzle pieces, really. Stick with Tool. Yeah, that's true. Oh, man, Tool would be a good thing to dissect. There's a lot of YouTube about dissecting Tool songs. Yeah. But yeah, he. Uh, this was the first song that he wrote as a solo performer. And it was his first single that he released. And it's the first song on the first solo record. Wow. So In the Air Tonight really was the beginning. His genesis, if you will. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, In the Air Tonight is what his entire solo career is built on. It, it's so weird that nothing else sounds like it. I know. It's it is it is a anomaly in his solo career. And really it's an anomaly in music period. But of course we've got to talk about that drum break. I would take a gander and say that this is maybe the most famous moment in drumming history. Mm-hmm. I I I don't think that any other drum moment is as recognizably known as the drum break in in the air tonight. I mean, certainly to non drummers. Yeah, to just yeah to the to the overall public. Yeah, this this is the most iconic moment in drumming history, and I mean that in of itself is such an incredible thing to think mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Phil Collins gets to lay claim to drumming's most iconic moment and it's and it's not Apocalypse in 9-8 nope it's not Watchers of the Sky Mm-mm. it's the super simple but giant reverby Tom Phil drum breakdown yeah it's it's kind of another exercise in musical responsibility. Mm-hmm. So it's good it's good to see someone who's so so talented be able to intentionally pull back for the sake of a good song. Yeah. And the other crazy thing is that when you think about it, this song like invented eighties drums. Yeah, the gated reverb stuff didn't really didn't really exist. It did exist before, but Phil Collins also did it because he did it for Peter Gabriel's third solo record. 
Well, but it didn't like it wasn't. The it goal. didn't pierce the mainstream until in the air tonight. Mm-hmm. And the then once once that happened, everyone started using gated reverb. Yep. And it became one of the signature sounds of the eighties. It's one of the it was one of the ways you could tell you were listening to an eighties song. Is you'd hear the drums and go, Oh, yep, that's that eighties drum sound. Yep. It's a good point. It's a good so really point. you could say that just overall in the air tonight is is one of the most important pop songs ever written. Because this song single-handedly changed the trajectory of pop music for a decade. The song is about itself. Mm-hmm. There's a change in the air. And it was the music of the 80s. Man. From that gated reverb. <laughs> yeah. And so um, now we get to move into our last song. All right. Well... Take us home. I will take us home to take me home. <laughs> oh boy! Okay, so we, we finally got a representative from No Jacker Required, which we is got a, another drum machine. Yes, and I felt like this would be appropriate after the mechanized drumming of the previous song. Yes, yes. Um, this has always been one of my favorites, and I feel like it's kind of underappreciated. Like it was a big hit at its time, but I felt I feel like as time has gone on, this song has kind of become more forgotten. And I think that this is one of his most brilliant compositions. Every single chord in that progression is major. And it's weird. Really? It's like in this weird mixolydian mode. But um that's kind of what makes it sound cathartic uh-huh so yeah i mean if you listen to that it's essentially just an e major b major d major a major right okay well i don't know if that's the exact cordage or the exact tab tablature or whatever you want to call it but it that's the equivalent and that's kind of what i'm hearing and so i mean because like if you think about like a rock song right you'd use kind of those chords but you wouldn't necessarily make a major but the fact that he's explicitly making these chords major, it, it, it's, it keeps an optimistic mood. And so obviously we had, I wish it would rain down being a cathartic kind of sad thing. Now we're in a cathartic, like optimistic type of song. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I thought that was, that was cool to hear because I was like, oh, we missed the catharsis moment, and I wish it would rain down. But no, we still have our, our good catharsis moment. We get the good ending here. Yes, we do. And just, again, I feel this is one of his more unique and experimental songs, I feel, because there's really not a whole lot of traditional um, instrumentation here. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that was kind of the theme of No Jacket Required in general, the whole concept, the idea is he – his first two records, he was just like, they're all like sad breakup songs. And so he wanted to make kind of more of a fun song that could be played in dance club. Mm-hmm. And even and the ballads, even the ballads on, on the album have, have a bit of a, a dancey groove to it. Hmm. So what is this one about? So he says that he took the perspective of someone that, and this is, this is kind of one of his, rare instances where he's not talking about his 
specific personal life. But he says that this is from the perspective of someone that's in a mental institution. Hmm. And that he just wants to go home. That's really dark. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, it, it, it kind of adds this because it's like there is catharsis, but there's kind of almost a bit of a darkness around it. It's 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 almost I don't I don't even know quite how to explain it. Yeah, no, it's it's this weird juxtaposition between this happy music and and the lyrical content. But at the same time, he's using phrases that sound really like, yeah, you know, like a rallying cry, like, I'm not superstitious, I don't wish upon a star, like, yeah, real hard and fast truth, yeah, you know. And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's so weird, because I, I did not pick up that theme at all. Yeah, it's definitely... Again, this is a bit of a a strange song as far as compared to what he normally does because it's not straightforward and direct and, and easily ascertainable. Yeah, but it's 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 stuff like that in, in the air tonight that kind of give that little exciting pulse to some of his music. Mm-hmm. We've um we've got two very famous background vocalists in this song background vocalist so it's not all him no those big harmonies are him sting and peter gabriel man that's awesome yeah talk about a trio right there oh my gosh now that you say that i can kind of hear a little bit of sting in there Mm -hmm. it's subtle enough to where you would never think it just listening to it because i thought it was just phil the whole time but this is a song that I find that when I'm singing along to it, when I switch between the melody and the harmony, it adds that much stronger layer of catharsis. Yeah. And then especially when the when the drums really start to come in towards the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's that final chorus, like the same thing over and over and over again. But, but yet you get old. It doesn't. It's it's quite you know that you've got something great when you can just play the same thing over and it never feels like you're hearing the same thing. Yeah. And those true. verses, those verses melodically are just so well constructed. Yeah. Cuz they cuz they really lead you to that chorus. Yeah, they do. They do. And I mean even more so, like you got good instrumentation as well. It's it keeps that real weird ambient feel as far as the guitars go, and you have kind of this almost primal thing happening with the drums and the drum machine. It 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 sounds kind of adventurous, mm-hmm. and those nice wide open harmonies. Yeah, really good, really well produced. I mean, there's so much space, and it's filled with, no pun intended, right? Filled with a bunch of reverb that's not overbearing, but really gives you a sense of, I don't know. It it gives you a sense of of maybe wonder, a fascination of, like, 
uh, like this need to explore. And I don't know, that doesn't seem like it fits the theme of the song, but that's just what I'm feeling. So maybe it's one of those where he had a good set of lyrics and some great music and he was just like, oh, I'll just put them together. Or maybe it was like intentionally juxtaposed. But either way, right, it makes for a good song. Yeah. And whichever way you look at it. Yeah. And this is this ever since this came out, this has always been um kind of like his main set closer. Ooh. Did you plan that before? Yes, I did. I did know that because all of his, because the, the um, the greatest hits compilation that I had, this was the last song on it, and it always felt complete after listening to that song and just going, "This is the way it was supposed to end." Does this end the album? Yes, it does. Ah, nice. So this was you. You can definitely feel that this was written to be a big anthemic closing track. And thus, it is our closing track now. Yes, it is. So, that's our set. All right. So, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Phil Collins and his solo career. So, don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just got finished talking about the six songs in our Phil Collins set list. Just to refresh, those songs were Something Happened on the Way to Heaven, Easy Lover, I Wish It Would Rain Down, Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now, In the Air Tonight, and Take Me Home. Now it's time to talk about our final thoughts about Phil Collins. So, Grant, when we started this episode... You were at a six. You you respected Phil Collins. There was a couple songs you really liked. How do you feel about him now? You know, I was correct to put him at a six. But I think I moved up maybe to a seven. I mean, these songs aren't necessarily the type of songs that are going to inspire me as a musician necessarily. They're not going to change the way that I see music. But I am going to probably enjoy some extra listening, which we forgot to talk about this episode. So, um we wanted to start this new thing where I would recap what I told you guys I'd listen to, but I guess we can start that next week. So, um, but I really feel like I want to listen to, but seriously, uh, probably where my head is gravitating towards because obviously we have the two songs on here that were very well produced and, you know, nice and big and wide and lots of space. And I feel like the representation that's on here and you describing it as being like his pinnacle creation of you know um the 1980s right so we didn't even talk about the number one hit off of that record right well okay so it makes sense that if you're gonna get into you know a band you're gonna listen to their their greatest record right so you can really get some of the best stuff get really inspired to listen to them so i feel like that would be the first spot where i would go for some extra listening so We'll see next week. Uh, if I enjoyed that, I anticipate that I really will. Um, just based off of the two songs that we have represented. So yeah, I probably I would be somewhere between a six and a seven, but heavily leaning on the seven side. I don't want to kind of um, say that I'm at a seven just because I have to move up 
right? I don't want I don't want to be dishonest. So I'm just going to say somewhere between a six and a seven because I did move up, but I don't know if I got that level. But um, I'll say this is the first time I think ever in the podcast where you said, oh, this song had no meaning and I wasn't like super disappointed. The fact that <laughs> In the Air Tonight had no meaning was kind of funny to me. Like I thought that actually added to the lore of the song, you know? Oh, yeah. The, the fact that everyone's trying to dissect it and this was his first song. He had no idea really how to write a song, so it had no meaning. That's hilarious. So I don't know. I I I like that little tidbit actually, which is which is not characteristic of me to say, oh man, you know, this song has no meaning. That's awesome. Usually I'm like, this song has no meaning. That's lazy. That makes me hate this song, you know. But, <laughs> context Uh, it matters context yeah that's true context and just (laughs) the fact that everyone's trying to pick it apart oh man but that one that one's not my favorite i found myself i feel bad picking the not phil collins song the not fully phil collins song to be my favorite phil collins quote-unquote phil collins song easy lover it's easy lover but because you know every time i listen to the set that was the one that kept being stuck in my head i would sing that you know as i was hey, you know, walking a, from it's a really well-written song as i was driving it would get stuck in my head and i loved to pretend that i could sing it you know <laughs> um it, it's such a well-written song so many good hooks i mean the verse and the other part of the verse and the chorus right all of it is just so memorable and oh, it's just so good. It's just so good. We've said that so much this episode, but it's just so good. So, um, yeah, Easy Lover, my favorite one. I hope it's everyone's favorite one because you know I have the most correct opinions, right? So, of uh, <laughs> and yeah, somewhere between a six and a seven, heavily leaning seven. I'm gonna listen to but seriously. So that's my final thought. All right. Well, for me, I mean, it's going to be hard for me to move up in my assumption, in my, uh, my love for Phil because he's already a- almost as high as it can be without becoming a pillar. I mean, along with Genesis, Phil Collins could be in that fifth spot because he's been specifically, he's been so influential to me as a vocalist. I can't say as a songwriter because I'm not a songwriter. But as a performer, he is one of the people that I look up to the most and has been um, someone that I've just just really, again, examining how to put emotion into a vocal and how to craft a vocal to where you give yourself somewhere really meaningful to go. I really learned from Phil. So I'm going to stay at a nine because, I mean, unless they – dethrone one of the four pillars it's not going to get higher than that (laughs) dethrone man that would be what a day that would be that would be the day momentous that's that's like when pigs fly you know when Mm -hmm. there's when one of the pillars gets dethroned that'll never happen well pigs on the wing never say never that's true (laughs) never say never you know i mean yeah what would it take man it would have to be I th- I don't think it would ever happen to a band that I currently listen to. It would have to be something left field that I don't ever see coming just all of a sudden coming in and going, 
oh my gosh, this is completely changing the entire way I look at things. That's probably what it would take. Because that's the last band that did that to me was Pink Floyd. Maybe you could be that artist for someone else, Lucas. Well, okay. I mean, you you never know. If you you say so. You talked once about maybe maybe writing your own music. Yeah. You could... you could if write. I, the if I can find the time for it, I might try it out. Just put put on a drum track and and say meaningless words, and then you know have it be the most influential song of the twenty twenties. Well, <laughs> do, Phil do Collins was song older. Song? Phil Collins was older than me before he started songwriting, so there's hope for me yet. Yeah. So. Uh, but my favorite, I I've also got to go with Easy Lover. That's Woo. just that's just always been like my go-to Phil Collins put on a jam song. Yeah. But against all odds is, is really coming in close behind. Mm. That's, that is one that I just, I can't stop singing. Yeah. The way you described it. Yeah. I I, I can tell. Mm Mm-hmm. Harry's favorite was uh, Wish It Would Rain Down. Really? Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. He's starting now to get into what the song is about. Mm. Instead of just asking me, what's this song called? He's going, he's asking me now, what's this song about? Ah, good man. And so he's, he's starting to get into, you know, kind of the meaning behind the songs. I think that that's influencing a little bit. Because so, he, he likes the fact that they talk about rain, and he's like, this is a sad song, isn't it? I said, yeah, it kind of is. So. Uh, developing he, he, his listening skills. Yeah, he really liked Phil Collins. Good. And then uh, my wife's pick, Callie's pick, is Against All Odds, because she loves the, the sappy emotional songs. I mean, you know, there's an audience for that. Yeah, I mean, I love it too. <laughs> All right, well, what a good episode. That, that is our episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you liked this, please make sure that you hit the subscribe button. We have new episodes every Monday at midnight. We're going to be continuing Genesis Appreciation Month, but with a different artist next week. Um it's going to be a volume two, but not in uh, the place that we normally do volume twos. But this is this is perfect for the theme that we're doing this month. So you want to make sure we check it out. We're, it's going to be a bit of a unique uh, episode. So make sure that you tune in for that. Uh, make sure you go find us on Instagram and Facebook. That's where we've got all this really cool stuff going on and where we can interact with you guys. Let us know there what artists you would like for us to cover in the future because even though we're not going to be doing it this month with the special themed month we will in october be doing another fan pick so make sure that you send us your suggestions and there's two links in the episode description one takes you to the spotify playlist please make sure that you go check out these songs it would be a shame if you did not and also i just realized i didn't uh tell you where everything hit on my ranked playlist oh yeah we should do that this actually this is the first time that this has ever happened but the six songs are the top six. Oh wow and i didn't plan that 
It just happened to happen like that. So where I was doing my second run through and I got the easy lover and I was just like, wait a minute, this is the first song from the set, but there's only six songs left. Ooh. So, okay. you know how I always like to make a big deal. This isn't the six best songs. Well, well, this case it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what's the order? The order was, and it's funny because easy lover is my favorite, but I put it at sixth. Yeah. Um, I did Easy Lover, Something Happened on the Way to Heaven, Take Me Home, Wish It Would Rain Down, Against All Odds in the Air Tonight. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So. Um, really splitting hairs there at the top, too. I know, really. it's It gets pretty tough. But. Like I was saying, click on the link to the Spotify playlist. You can go listen to these songs. I highly recommend it. The other link will take you to our Patreon page where you can um, subscribe and get access to episodes early as well as get access to our segment of the Bad Music Podcast where we're going to talk about old Phil's six worst songs. So you want to make sure that you tune in for that. And we'll see you guys next week. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music.